This is the Northwest Passage from KLCC News. I'm Rachel McDonald, KLCC News Director. I'm Journalism Fellow Elizabeth Gabriel. I'm Mallory Begay, News Reporter. So last week in our podcast, we talked about the first major Black Lives Matter protest in Eugene, which was about a month ago now, and the evolution of the protests over the past four weeks. For the second in our special series on BLM protests, we're catching up on the most recent developments. A lot happened over the past weekend here in Eugene and Springfield. And Elizabeth, maybe we could start with the Friday night protest in Springfield. Yeah. So on Friday, Black Unity held a protest in Springfield, and I believe that was their first protest that they ever had in that area. And largely this was in response to the pro-police protest that was held the Monday before in which protesters were advocating for the police. They said they were in support of Black Lives Matter, but also pro-police, which is something that many groups have not necessarily understood. And so Black Unity held a protest on Friday and they were trying to spread awareness about the BLM movement as well as how they want police funds to be reallocated. So they were marching around, they went through a neighborhood, and there were about seven counter-protesters there, but the group didn't really interact with them. There wasn't any altercations or anything like that, which is kind of what happened on Monday. It was a very non-violent protest that occurred on Friday. However, whenever the protesters were rounding a corner, to go through the neighborhood, they were faced with a line of at least 10 SPD officers who were holding batons. They looked ready to battle for some reason, and the protesters were just so frustrated because there was no reasoning to have them there. Nothing had occurred to really warrant that response. Protesters were very frustrated, and so after they finished their protest, In that neighborhood, they actually drove to Springfield Library and continued their protests downtown where things did escalate. And that did result in a protest that occurred Saturday night because they were so frustrated that they felt they needed to have a last minute protest to just say, hey, like we are human beings. There is no need to have that kind of retaliation for a protest that isn't even violent. Do you think that the Springfield police behaved differently on Saturday night from how they were on Friday night? Because it sounds like Friday night, at least the way that it was perceived, was that they seemed a little aggressive. They were pretty aggressive on both nights. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if I could say they were more or less on one night. I would almost say they were more aggressive on Friday night. Uh, I saw multiple instances where protesters were trying to walk into the street to protest, or even they would stand on the street, but right next to the curb. And a police officer pushed a protester back onto the sidewalk. And that happened on multiple occasions. And at one point on Friday, there was a biker gang that kind of drove by. And when the biker gang arrived, police came by shortly after, which led to more protesters being pushed back onto the sidewalk again. And I think that is very different from what happened Saturday, where 
There was a bit of shoving between police officers and protesters, but not nearly as much. What were some of the things that the protesters were chanting as they were out there in Springfield? So some of the protesters were chanting, no justice, no peace, no racist ass police. That's been a main chant of theirs. Also, I don't see no riot here. Why are you in riot gear? Which is a very valid question. I think in in addition to that, they tried to be more calculated in their response on Saturday compared to Friday. On Saturday, they told chanters that if police started making the announcement for them to disperse, they wanted protesters to just really scream, we can't hear you, we can't hear you, just so that they aren't held responsible for not leaving, essentially. So I think it's interesting to see like the different tactics they kind of used when chanting specifically in front of SPD officers. Well, I reached out to Springfield Police just to see if they had any kind of statement or reaction to what happened over the weekend. And I spoke with Sergeant David Grice. And he said, you know, that the police department appreciates citizens' right to protest and that their main responsibility is to protect public safety and property. And he also complained that it would be so much easier if the protesters would get a permit so that police would know, okay, they're going to march down this street and we're going to close off this street. And he said, he kind of explained that it's frustrating when, when the police don't know where the protest group is going in order to sort of keep, keep the streets safe. So I think, you know, he was being careful in explaining their perspective, but that I can kind of understand that there is a challenge there because they're trying to protect the whole public, you know, I think is, is what, what he was saying. I think that's interesting that he says that. Um, just because during the standoff on Saturday, protest leaders were trying to come to an agreement with police officers. So there was at least one protester who was having conversation back and forth with SPD to try to figure out like, how do we deescalate? How do we move on from this position? And what will that look like in this moment? But I think it is interesting that they still, again, came out in riot gear on Friday. They also had the incident on Friday and did not issue a press release that same night or either the next morning. Protesters have mentioned that they have had conversations with cops about getting drinks, about having, you know, this friendly conversation in which they kind of talked about the BLM movement. And they said that happened weeks ago after the first riot occurred. And now they kind of felt betrayed in a sense because it felt like they were just reacting and not really listening or even watching what they were doing. I noticed when you were live tweeting on Saturday night, you mentioned sort of your observations about the Springfield police, that that most of them seemed to be male and white, at least the way that they looked. I, you know, cannot, I can only be in one place at one time. I can't be everywhere. But again, as a black reporter, don't necessarily feel comfortable walking the line. So I don't know if I did accurately capture everyone who was there. 
But from what I could tell, going to a, a few different spots in the standoff, they all looked very white. Uh, some, I believe later on I saw someone who could have been a Latinx community member, but I believe there was just one. I know I saw maybe two females on Friday night and maybe one on Saturday night, but just overwhelmingly very white and very male. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's interesting to observe. I We haven't necessarily heard from Springfield any kind of commitment to a more diverse police force, but that might be an interesting thing to ask them about, you know, when we have another opportunity to talk with them. I think it's also, it's important that local police departments look at the demographics of the people they are hiring, but also important to examine the personalities to see what the appropriate responses are. Because there was an incident on Saturday where I was in the middle of the standoff. There was a line of police officers, there was a line of protesters, and I was smack dab in the middle just trying to get a good view of what was happening. And for some reason, this police officer turned to me and was like, hey, uh, where'd you get your recorder from? And I kind of ignored him, kind of looked at him like he was crazy because uh, <laughs> we're in the middle of a standoff. And I was like, oh, I got it at the store. And he's like, oh, but which store? Where? Where? What store did you get it from? And I was like, well, I don't think that's really relevant right now. We also need to be aware of what we're saying to people and how we're interacting with people because that's not an example of blatant racism, but it is an example of someone trying to assert their dominance over a black female reporter because I was also standing near KZI and I wasn't in that area for very long, but I highly doubt the very white KZI reporters were asked that question. So do you think that he was inferring in some way that you had stolen it? I don't, I didn't even think about that. I mean, what, um, what is, I mean, what, I just am curious, like what? I just think he was trying to antagonize mm-hmm. in a very inappropriate way because one, he's on the clock and on duty and should not antagonize anyone, especially a reporter and a reporter of color. And I also think it's this larger conversation of, how people interact with people again, because even on Monday during the pro-police protest, I had multiple pro-police protesters come up and ask me, hey, why are you here? Which is very different from whenever I am attending a BLM related protest, because they ask, who are you with? Those are two very different questions, asking me what organization I am with and why are you here? Why is a black person who is very obviously carrying recording equipment and taking pictures and trying to document the situation? Why is she present in this moment? Those are two very different questions. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I was curious, have you noticed a difference between how police are reacting in Springfield versus Eugene at these protests? I know during the Friday protest in Springfield, Clea Ibrahim did ask, just to the crowd before things escalated, she did ask, you know, why are cops here leading us when those are the people we're protesting? I think there is a very different response that SPD has had compared to EPD. But I think it is a good question of like, 
how much do these protesters need police officers? And is it the responsibility of protesters to work with the police? Is it the responsibility of the police to work with protesters? I don't know how that relationship looks like, but I think the escalation tactics that we've seen with EPD in the early days of protest and Springfield now aren't necessarily warranted. You know, I think it's really interesting that observation that the Black Unity leader made, you know, Elizabeth, that you just quoted, that why are the police leading us when we're protesting them? And it is a weird situation where the police are not only the object of protest or the subject of protest, but they're also there with the, you know, the goal, the idea is that they're supposed to be protecting citizens and yet the citizens are protesting against how they do that and at its very core I mean police are supposed to be public servants so how it's complicated it's a complicated situation I can see how from both sides there's a lot of questions at the end of the night on Saturday it seemed like the Black Unity Group was kind of reevaluating their attitude toward police reform. Yeah, so after the standoff on Saturday, they walked back down to the Springfield Library and it seemed like the protest was almost done. And one of the protest leaders made the announcement and said he apologized. They are sorry they made that mistake. He said that they should have stood up to the police and stood their ground when wanting to move past 15th Street and on to 21st Street, which led to a longer protest in which they were just in another standoff with police. And during that time, they specifically said that they are not in solidarity with the police officers. They said that they believe in ACAB, which is that all cops are bastards. So I think that definitely signified a shift in what they were previously behind. And I think that was even more apparent in events that occurred on Sunday. Well, let's go to Sunday because Sunday was challenging from an assignment editor's perspective because it turned out there were three different events happening that day. One was an LGBTQ plus march as part of Pride Month. There was also the Black Unity Children's March and the Indigenous Peoples March, which Brian Bull ended up covering which I'm glad he did because it was really the only event of its kind that's happened here in Eugene with all the other Black Lives Matter movement events. And we had already covered an LGBTQ plus event the previous day. So anyway, it was with short staff, you have to make these decisions. The problem is that what started out as a children's march kind of became something very different. And um, Mallory, why don't you describe what happened and sort of what went on from there? So this entire situation is really unfortunate for a number of reasons. Uh, But, you know, the main reason is because it turns out that Black Unity member Isaiah Wagner, who has become a really well-known figure for his de-escalation efforts and for advocating for a peaceful protest was involved in a hit and run. And so during the children's protest, a driver had actually hit Wagner when Wagner was trying to protect some of the protesters who were actually kids because it was a children's march. And it turns out that his own daughter was among the marchers. 
so emergency services was called, and medics arrived to transport Wagoner to the Riverbend Hospital where he was treated for non-life-threatening injuries. And so during the same time that this was all happening, a few of the Black Unity protesters had actually tracked down the vehicle that they say hit Wagoner. They found it at a nearby apartment complex, but by the time that they arrived there, the driver had already vacated the vehicle. And so the Eugene Police Department was on scene and they were taking witness statements. Uh, And while that was happening, Tyshawn Ford, who was another Black Unity member, says that, you know, they looked inside the vehicle. They were able to identify a piece of mail and they took a picture of that piece of mail and zoomed in on that photo and found the address of the driver who has been named as Travis Willary. So this entire scene was actually captured by one of the Black Unity members who had Facebook live streamed the events at the apartment complex. And so that's how I was tipped off to what was actually happening because as it turns out, there weren't any outlets covering at the time of this hit and run. So far, there hasn't been any video footage of that hit and run either, which, you know, these protests have been pretty well documented with a lot of people, journalists and non-journalists, taking a lot of videos and photos, but this hit and run wasn't captured. And so back to the live stream at the apartment complex, what you see is a police officer standing near a stairwell while some protesters are demanding the Eugene Police Department to make an arrest. And so what happened was the Eugene Police Department actually positioned several police officers at the bottom of the stairs to sort of form a barrier between the protesters and Willary as he was escorted to the vehicle. So later, Black Unity gathered again and they decided to protest outside the Lane County Jail because it turns out that Willary was not arrested. He was detained, questioned, and then released. And so... So EPD says that they did not make an arrest because there were conflicting witness statements. And so they've been asking the public for any footage of this hit and run. Once the investigation is complete, they're going to send that to the district attorney's office. It's interesting, too, that since Sunday, we have not seen and we're we're recording this on Wednesday, but we haven't seen any protests or marches from Black Unity or the other Black Lives Matter groups. And I know, um, I think it was maybe Monday when Black Unity put a note on their Facebook page saying basically, we're exhausted, we need to take some time for self-care after this experience. It just seems like there's some kind of reassessment taking place based on the fact that they haven't been out there on the streets in the last couple of days. I do think it's important too to mention what Isaiah Wagoner said himself, um, he shared a post on Facebook where he ta- he kind of describes what happened. And at least from his perspective, it sounds like Willary was intentionally driving into the march, you know, based on based on what what Wagoner said, who was very clearly a witness that Willary hit him intentionally, in fact, accelerated and then flipped him off as he was running him over is the way that Wagner describes it. 
So that's, you know, a pretty strong indication that there was some intent, at least based on that testimony. Mm -hmm. There's some questioning over whether or not this incident can be considered a hate crime because Wagner is black and because this was a part of a Black Lives Matter protest. And so I think there's a lot weighing on the outcome. If he's not arrested, that could escalate things even more just because you have all of these people who say this is what happened. You have Wagner saying this is what happened. And really, it's down to what the police department finds. A police department that's already under some pretty heavy scrutiny right now. They're under a microscope. Everything that they do is, especially regarding this case, I feel like is is kind of sensitive. Well, as we just are recording this, Eugene Police did send out a news release saying that they are initiating their first set of policing reforms in the wake of George Floyd's death in Minneapolis. And among those reforms is that they have removed the carotid restraint from their policies. So that lethal force option is no longer an option and no longer condoned as a less lethal tool and will not be trained any longer. That's a quote from this news release. And their other listings kind of look at just that they're going to be looking at their policies. But it's interesting, one of their things that they're going to be looking at is use of force, including pointing a firearm or a taser at someone with the intent to gain compliance. So this is interesting to see that they are trying to put in some reforms and responding to public pressure. And I guess we'll see what else they do and also, of course, see what the city does in terms of responding to the community's demands to either reallocate funds or defund the police department here. Thanks for joining us for another edition of the Northwest Passage podcast from KLCC News. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. I'm Journalism Fellow Elizabeth Gabriel. And I'm News Reporter Mallory Begay. Bye. Bye. Until next time. Music for the Northwest Passage podcast is composed and performed by Don Latarski.